1: Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's episode, Audible. Audible is the world's largest library of audiobooks. I've been an Audible subscriber for years now. If you follow me on Instagram, where I share all of the books I read each month on my Instagram stories, you know that I love to read a few books a month via Audible. For listeners of Sounds Good, Audible is offering two free audiobooks when you start your Audible trial today. That's two free books. I think that's a big deal. Just visit soundsgoodpodcast.com/slash audible to start your free trial and get two free books. Two of my favorite books on Audible that I absolutely recommend are one, The Hate You Give. It's a beautiful young adult novel by Angie Thomas that explores race and activism and is going to be released as a film soon, so you gotta get the book first. Number two. The Book of Joy. It's an absolutely beautiful book by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, and it's one of my favorite books in the world. I've actually already listened to it twice. Whatever you're looking for, Audible has audiobooks for every passion. Get two on us when you start today. Visit soundsgoodpodcast.com slash audible to get two books free and to show your support for Sounds Good. Audible. Listening is the new reading. One of the biggest themes that's come out of this podcast over the last two years has been this idea of resilience. This idea that sometimes when life takes a turn for the worst, we're forced to begin life anew. And resilient is a perfect word to describe my podcast guest today, Christine Carlson. After the tragic and unexpected loss of her husband, Christine Carlson resolved to find hope in the midst of heartache, and her life has never been the same since. Today, Christine is a New York Times bestselling author, a speaker, and a leader in the field of transformation. After collaborating with her late husband, Dr. Richard Carlson, to create a publishing industry phenomenon with the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff series, which ended up selling more than 25 million copies worldwide, Christine is emerging as a profound teacher in the areas that matter most to the human heart, how to heal and how to love. The Hero's Journey to Joy offers a process for healing that goes beyond common prescriptions for getting through pain and loss. Christine's message of self-discovery and transition has been featured on national radio and television broadcasts, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, The View, and The Oprah Winfrey Show. I loved my time with Christine, and she is somebody who exudes a lot of joy, which is absolutely incredible, knowing that her life has held some of the darkest moments imaginable. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. I'm so excited about this conversation. My hope is that Christine's story would leave you feeling a little bit less alone. Let's just jump straight into this. So, Christine, I think that I saw something about you living in Oregon at some point. Are you, by any chance, from the Pacific Northwest?
0: I am from the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Portland, Oregon.
1: Okay, so I used to live in Portland for five or six years, and I loved it. It was so good. How long were you in Portland?
0: Oh, man, I grew up there. My family um, moved me when I was eight years old from the Midwest, from a little town outside of Chicago. And we went back to my dad's hometown, which is Portland, and lived there from the time I was eight to 18. Grew up there, went to the same elementary school, junior high and high school with a lot of my buddies. And then um, once I left home, though, I really went to Southern California. I was a Southern California girl and then a Northern California girl from then on.
1: How did you decide that you wanted to go to Southern California?
0: Oh, man, that's a good story. I was sitting in um, choir. And, and in my high school, everyone did choir. It was like the all the football players all of the, everybody. So there was this huge, choir. What?
1: that's so yeah. Portland. That I feel like really that's cool? a very Portland thing.
0: I know. It was so cool. And so I sit in choir one day and it was, a, I think in October, my um, junior year, and everybody was talking about where they were going to apply to schools. And I hadn't even thought about it. I just assumed that I would just go to Oregon or Oregon state, you know, like most of my friends. And so I really didn't really didn't like um, think too much about it. And one day I was in choir and this brochure came by my lap and I looked at it and I, I kind of woke up. I looked at it. It was so beautiful. I was like, what is this? It said Pepperdine university. And then I, I, I was like, what, this doesn't look like a school. How could people go to school there? <laughs> like really? What, what kind of school is Pepperdine? And that was all it took. I just sat down and my friends all said, well, you can't apply there. It's too expensive. And I just did anyways and then I ended up getting an academic scholarship to Pepperdine University and it changed the course of my life by going there because of course that's where I met my husband.
1: Yeah, tell me a little bit about your husband because I would imagine some people tuning into this episode know you in the context of the books you've written with your husband who is Dr. Richard Carlson. Tell me about how you guys met. What was that story like?
0: Right. So Richard and I met um I was a freshman and he was 2 years older. And um we met one Sunday after brunch and he was just kicking up his heels with a friend and I I looked up and I thought, "Oh man, that guy wants to meet me." <laughs> <laughs> so I was walking by myself and so I thought, "Well, I'm going to make this really easy for him." And I yelled, "Hey, guys, wait for me." I knew his friend and so I just, they were looking back at me, and you know, it was really obvious. And so I ran up and Richard was pretty shy, which is really surprising to most people because he became such a celebrity author, but he was very, very shy when I met him. And so um, that day we, we went back to our dorms, which happened to be side by side and we were talking underneath a tree. And I just remember, having the uh, emotional awareness that I was with this very special person. And the reason I felt that way was because, first of all, he was a really handsome, really good looking guy, (laughs) super hot, you know, tennis player, just really, you know, great looking man. But I, I just had this really odd feeling that I had never been more myself with any other human being. Really, I felt so at home with him. And then I went upstairs and I called my mom. It was Sunday. I called her every Sunday And I said, my mom said, well, have you met anybody at school? You know, in our conversation, I said, popped out of my mouth, just said, yeah, I think I've just met the man I'm going to marry. And she goes, what? She goes, well, have you gone out with him yet? And I go, oh, no, haven't gone out with him yet. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, and that was the beginning of our love affair that really lasted our whole lives. You know, we just, we just fell in love instantly and we stayed in love our entire marriage. You know, we always used to say we had a lot of issues, but not with each other.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. So you end this conversation with your mom and she's like, are you guys dating yet? And, And you're not. Who makes the next move? How does that kind of progress?
0: We, I had in our conversation, I had told Richard, he was upset with his roommate, didn't want to um, stay in the dorms. And so he didn't know how to get out of the dorms because at Pepperdine they had a rule where you had to be living on campus for a full six months or a year. But I had learned how to get around that. And so I remember sharing with him how to get around that. And so he went through the process of, of moving himself off campus. And so I didn't see him for a couple weeks. And then I had an interview with a modeling agency, and I was really nervous about it um, because, you know, I was this hometown girl from Portland, Oregon. I had sent out my ZED card, which I didn't really think anybody would respond. But heck, I was going to Hollywood, anyways. <laughs> New Hollywood. I thought I might as well. I might as well do it. Everyone else would. So, <laughs> and then, sure enough, I got called from Wilhelmina and. I was in, you know, total shock, terrified of the interview, um, and I didn't really see anybody for a week before because I was just kind of hibernating, dieting, hibernating, you know, just really scared, trying to prepare for that interview. And then I went down really early one morning to the cafeteria at Pepperdine, and I bumped into Richard, and he was the only other person in the cafeteria at six thirty in the morning, and. I remember this feeling like, oh, God, I don't want to talk to him. I'm so nervous. I'll have to explain why. But then I thought, well, if I don't talk to him, he's not going to think I like him. And I'm so excited that I get to see him again. And so I I sat down with him. And then again, this calm came over me. And I just, I felt so peaceful when I was with him. And I told him what I was doing that day. I had no makeup on. I had my hair like pulled back in a French braid. Believe me, I even remember what I was wearing.
1: That's amazing.
0: I had a like, flannel shirt on, plaid flannel shirt and white sweats. <laughs> and then I, we just had this amazing conversation. And, you know, it was also the moment that Richard fell in love with me because he was a tennis player, like slated number one at Pepperdine. He was red shirted at the time. And... I didn't know that. I didn't know that about him. We didn't have any of that kind of conversation going on. And I sat there and I asked him um, why he was always wearing sweats. And he said, well, I hit a lot of tennis balls. And I thought when he said that, he meant that he just hit with the team, meaning like he was kind of like a ball boy, you know? Hmm. And, and here I, I said, well, do you love tennis? And he said, "Um, no, not really. And I go, well, do you spend a lot of time playing tennis? He said, yeah. A lot of time. And I said, well, if you don't love it, then why do you do it? I mean, you should really only do what you love, shouldn't you? And, and he just looked at me and it was like this light bulb went off and he went ding, ding, ding. I found <laughs> my key supporter in this world. <laughs> and then we, you know, I, I remember thinking, what did I just say? Cause he just looked at me like, wow, nobody's ever told yeah. me that. That's what he said. Then I found out that he was um, number one at Pepperdine, and I had just told him to quit tennis.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh! And did he quit? He quit. Whoa! He quit. That's
0: yeah. He wow. He quit six months later. We were together, and and he was ready. He he knew he was called to. He he said, "I'm just. I know I'm called to something different—a life of service." He felt of some kind, and it took him a few years to figure it out, like what yeah. what he was really called to be, and. And again, you know, Richard was like a kind of guy that he had to follow his heart. He had to. And he knew when he wasn't in alignment with his heart because it just it didn't feel right. He would get anxiety and he just knew that wasn't the way he was supposed to feel. And so he would make these kind of like these huge pivot turns. Sometimes I felt like I was always on. The end of a water ski boat with him, like where I was like, okay, <laughs> here we go. I'm gonna cross the wake now, you know, and I'm holding on. <laughs> and I was just always feeling like, you know, it was always gonna turn out really well. I knew that Richard was a man that was driven and I knew that when he found his passion and he found what he was supposed to do in this world, he would do it at the number one capacity because that's who he was as a person. And so I was never worried about what he chose to do. I mean, I really wasn't. It took him 10 years to um, write a number one best-selling book that went phenomenally crazy around the world. But I think I always knew it was going to happen.
1: I was going to ask about that because it's interesting because you met him before he was you know, quote unquote, Dr. Richard Carlson, the New York Times bestselling author. You know, you knew him before he was even probably pursuing that line of work.
0: Oh yeah, I met him in college. Like he was, yeah, he was like a poli-sci business major when I met him.
1: (laughs) That's hilarious.
0: (laughs) So for all those young people that don't know what they're going to do when they grow up, believe me, you don't know until sometimes years (laughs) later. (laughs)
1: How did you kind of imagine your life together would look like? What did you imagine, you know, 10, 20 years down the road?
0: Well, you know, we had jumped on a real spiritual path. Like We were kind of at the cusp of that New Age awakening time when, you know, there was just a lot of um, great leaders like Ram Dass and Stephen Levine and all these different people like Wayne Dyer, you know, we you know, Est was coming into power, you know, there's just all this Tony Robbins. I mean, there's just all this great, you know, personal growth stuff happening during our era. And it was really just the lead just beginning at that point, you know, and, um, and so we really jumped on that. And we didn't do like the Tony Robbins route or anything like that. But what we did was we were very into the Hindu um, meditation route. So both Richard and I learned from a transpersonal psychologist how to meditate, and um, really young, and practiced meditation for years and years and years, our whole lives. So we we always used to joke that we must be the two youngest, most healed people alive because we did every modality <laughs> of healing. <laughs> we did like flotation tanks and rebirthing and Reiki and breath work and holotropic breath work and. You know, we did some other things too, but it, we just, we were very healed, you know?
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so funny.
0: He started his career out as a rolfer. Do you know
1: what rolfing is? I have no idea what that is. Well,
0: it's a bodywork therapy. Ida Rolf um, developed it um, in the, I think in the early 70s, late 60s. And Richard um, had been rolfed and in fact, his very best friend, um was a rolfer that rolfed him and it was Benjamin Shield and, you know, and he, he didn't know that he was going to become a psychologist, but he knew he wanted to be, he knew he was a healer, you know, basically he, he'd gone into his education thinking he was going to go into business and finance and then dropped his MBA, six classes short of finishing and went into rolfing school. (laughs) That was his. That was a, one of the big pivot turns he took, and after that, he determined that rolfing wasn't his endpoint, but it allowed us to, you know, be entrepreneurs and make a living um, while we first got married. At that point, and it helped pay the bills while he was getting his master's and PhD in psychology. And then during his master's and PhD program, he knew that he wanted to write, and he began to work on some very beautiful anthologies with Benjamin. Um, that he brought to the world and and kind of turned anthologies upside down like they weren't really popular until Ben and Richard really started writing them.
1: what was the first book that really took off of of Richard's
0: well I mean he he did moderately well with all of his books but Um, the first book I think that got him some attention was you can be happy no matter what. He was one of the very first authors to ever write about happiness and use happy in a title. And it was, he wrote that one back in, I want to say
1: 1989. Why do you think that nobody else had really used that, that word in, you know, in the book context?
0: Well, it was really pre-positive psychology. So okay. the way people looked at psychology at that time was that um, traditionally people were unhealthy and it didn't look at people that they had a healthy psychology model. Now, Richard Swarm that he studied and practiced, which came from a group called Psychology of Mind at the time, they did start to look at a person as being wholly healthy and that you only have moments of, of unhealth. And so the idea was to get people back to their healthy alignment much quicker. And, and that, that really is the nature of where we live, that we're basically born healthy and that most of us, and we're not talking about people who have like borderline personality disorder, bipolar disorder or whatever, they have a real chemical issue to deal with. But for the majority of people we are very healthy minded but we have moments of of you know unhealth where we're just off balance and 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 his form of psychology really taught people about their mental health and well-being via these very simple principles to understand
1: and so this book comes out and it's starting to gain more attention and other books are coming out and you're not necessarily writing with him at this point. What What is your life looking like at this time?
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. So I had early on in our marriage, I had a graphic design business, a graphic design. Oh, interesting. And marketing. That's cool. Yeah, a, a graphic design and marketing company, and and that's what I was focused on um, as far as growing that as an entrepreneur. And then we started having a family about. Um, four years into our marriage, seven years into our relationship, we co-authored Jazz, our first daughter, <laughs> 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 and then and then Kenna, two and a half years later. And about that time, we moved, and I just I brought my office home, and it just as as we had Kenna, our my business life got to be just way too complicated. She wasn't like she was healthy, but she had a lot of ear infections, and so she couldn't be in daycare. So we just I I really had to be a full-time mom at that point. It was, it was a hard transition because I was very career oriented, but we just really decided that that would be the best thing for our family at that time would be for me to, you know, be home full-time. And then Richard would continue to pursue um, his, he at that point had his, his PhD in psychology and he was, pre-coaching, he had a program called happiness training, and he didn't ever get an MFCC because he didn't believe in traditional therapy or psychology, um, very much. So he, he was really a pioneer. I mean, I'm telling you, this guy was really ahead of his time. He did things way ahead of his time. And so, you know, as a pioneer, it's not always the easiest place to sit because, you know, you have to convince people of all of these you know things first and teach them and he was like before we even understood that we lived in our own separate realities Richard was talking about the principle of thought and separate realities and present moment living and really teaching mindfulness but it was all preceding all of these you know great new amazing things that are just our way of life now you know (laughs) So these conversations are just what we talk about now, but they weren't back when Richard was talking about them, you know, 30 years ago.
1: It is really interesting to see how Richard, in some ways, laid the groundwork for these ideas that are a little bit more popular now. And, you know, your background wasn't necessarily writing or psychology. You said that you were working in the graphic design world, but also you were, you know, in mom mode as well. When did you start to work alongside Richard also kind of contributing in writing?
0: Well, that's a great question. You know, one thing that uh, was really clear about our relationship early on was, like I had alluded to earlier, we were really on a spiritual path together. And so our spiritual practice, our meditation practice, and the kind of psychology that Richard learned through the psychology of mind uh, really influenced his career and influenced our relationship. And so I was right alongside of him, learning those principles and living those principles with him, even though my career wasn't necessarily taking that same turn. I was very much a part of um, his work world and his, you know, being his support person And we really lived this stuff. We lived these five principles that he wrote about in the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books and and, in his earlier work. And so what happened was the publisher actually um, really encouraged Richard to create the series of Don't Sweat books. He would have been considered alongside Chicken Soup for the Soul, which were our kind of, those were competitive books at the time. So we were kind of the first branded group of books where Don't Sweat the Small Stuff became a series, Chicken Soup for the Soul became a series, and they were running neck and neck on the New York Times, too, both of those series. Of course, I like to say that I'm sure Jack Campbell doesn't appreciate this,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but
0: they didn't ever get to the number one spot because Don't Sweat the Small Stuff was always there. <laughs> <laughs> for the, for two years, anyway. So, but they were, you know, those books were so um, right together, they, uh, they're they often remembered together, because they were at the same time period. And so Richard asked me to write Don't Sweat the Small Stuff in Love with him. And that was about the third book in the series. And so... Oh, wow. Yeah and I was I was so um honored and touched that he would want me to be alongside of him as a co-author and so we had a great time I mean seriously we we joked and laughed that every couple should write a relationship book because it was very <laughs> enlightening
1: <laughs> I bet I bet
0: Yeah. And then I did such a, um, you know, it was easy to do the publicity tour with Richard alongside of me and my, our publisher Hyperion at the time was so delighted that not only could I write, but I could speak. And I, you know, I, I had the personality for media. And so they were like, do you think Chris would want to write a book for women? And, Richard was really, he sat down with me and he was so excited to share that with me. And then he was super surprised by my response because I said, when he asked me, he's like, I'm so excited to tell you the publisher really wants you to write Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for Women. And I think he thought I'd be thrilled. And instead I, I looked at him, I go, oh my God, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, you don't? And I said, no. Why would I want to do that? I mean, it's like, how could our family survive two authors in the same home? I mean, it was totally different for him to be, you know, a full-time author and and me to jump on board for a six-week book tour. That was doable. But I I just didn't see our kids were at such an age. And I just, he goes, well, I'll stay home. I want to stay home for a while. (laughs)
1: That's and funny.
0: So we switched gears and I did, I did write Don't Sweat the Small Stuff for Women, but um, Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's came when came around to it. I was scared, you know, to be really honest, I, I was terrified having been out of the professional work world for a while and, and, you know, not having him by my side on the book tour was, it was terrifying to me. I, I remember we were headed home from a family vacation in Hawaii and I was due to go do some media coaching in LA like a week after. And then my book tour started. My launch was in two weeks after this trip. And I remember I was standing at the bathroom, waiting in line for the bathroom on the plane. And I remember looking at the emergency door and thinking, I would so rather jump out of that emergency door than go back home and prepare for this book tour. (laughs) And I I went back to my seat and I told Richard that I go, God, I'm so terrified. I am absolutely terrified. He goes, what are you scared of? And I said, I think I'm scared because I'm just your wife. Like I'm, I'm like riding on your coattails here. This feels really odd to me. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm just your wife. How, what if the public doesn't perceive that I'm, you know, capable of this or part of your series? He goes, Chris. You're the only one that's capable or or could write. Don't sweat the small stuff for women. Nobody else understands our series like you do. You're the you're the perfect person to write this book. And mm, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So it, not that I my fear was really that much um, laid at that point. I, it took me still a little bit more to get past it. <laughs>
1: But that was part of our early adventure. I don't want to zoom too far ahead here, but I do want to talk about this. How long was it before Richard passed away?
0: So we had a ten-year run at that point um, when "Don't Sweat the Small Stuff" came out. Richard died just two weeks after the tenth anniversary copy came out. Um, they they'd done this beautiful um, anniversary book, and he was so thrilled. I, I remember we always remember him standing in the kitchen and saying god this is amazing it's been 10 years he said i can't believe it and he said you know what's really cool about this book and that it's been 10 years for the series is that every 10 years there's a whole new group of people that will need this work and benefit from it
1: that's beautiful that's really profound
0: yeah it was really amazing and i was really happy you know on hindsight that he had the opportunity to to see, you know, in 10 years was a really nice long leap in a lot of ways, not long enough, of course, but he he did know that he had made a huge impact on the world. And I'm super grateful for that. Because of course, when somebody dies as young as he did, he was only 45. A lot of times they don't have the opportunity to realize the impact that they've made. But I do think that while he was so humble, he was aware that his book had made a phenomenal impact on the personal growth world. And also just on, you know, just at a deep heart level of millions of people.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about what that day was like that you lost him? How did you, how did you find out? How do you even get that news?
0: Yeah. So just, we had two girls, our daughters were in high school at the time. Kenna was a freshman and Jazz was a senior. And it was a very busy time of year. It was December 13th um, in 2006. So it was right before Christmas and right before the holiday break. And the girls had finals. And, you know, it's just a really, really... Um, you know, busy time. And he was on book tour. He was promoting a book um, called Don't Get Scrooged, which he would find extremely hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that, that he died promoting that book, Don't Get Scrooged. That, that is just, that would be, he would, he would laugh at that, <laughs> the irony of that. Anyways, he was, um, he left the night before for a um, promotional tour in New York. And we had talked that night. It was a busy, busy time. He said hi to the girls. Um, he just went the night because his flight was at six a.m. And that morning, I always talked to him before he flew. And for some reason, I woke up five minutes later than usual, and I missed him. I, I called him, and his flight had—he'd already turned off his phone. His flight had taken off. And so I just, I went about my day, you know, just normal day, doing breakfast dishes, getting the girls out to school, getting ready for Christmas. And I'm in my car and I hear, I, you know, my cell phone rings and I look down and it's a New York area code. And I pick it up thinking Richard is calling me to tell me he's landed safely. And there's, there's, these you know, strangers on the phone and they start asking me a lot of questions and, they tell me that they're a doctor and a nurse and they're at the Memorial hospital in Queens, New York. And I say, well, you know, and they're asking me about Richard and, and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm Richard's wife. Like, who are you? Why do you, why are you asking me these questions? And, and then they say, you know, well, are you parked? You know, are you, are you, are you on a cell phone? And I say, yeah, they go, well, are you parked? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm parked. And I'm now I'm really getting kind of I'm starting to get freaked out. You know, I'm like, what's going on? Is Richard? All right. And they they say we have Mr. Carlson with us here. And I'm like, well, that's impossible, because he he's on a flight. Like, how do you have him there? And they just say, Mrs. Carlson, you know, we're terribly sorry to inform you that Mr. Carlson has expired. And I just I mean in some ways the word expired is a beautiful word to use for Richard because he was such an inspired
1: person. <laughs>
0: but on the other hand expired to the receiver is a really tough word. It's
1: terrible language.
0: Well, you can't get your head around it. You know like you just can't, you know, it it's like all suddenly you're hearing a foreign language and you don't understand what they're talking about and I mean, I don't know if there's any tactful way to tell somebody over the phone that they've just lost the love of their life. You know, I I don't, I don't know that you, there's a way to do that tactfully, but the word expired really threw me. And I remember, you know, saying like that, repeating it several times, expired, expired, expired. What are you talking about? And then they say, you know, we don't know what happened, but you know, he, he died and he, he died on the flight. And I just was like, when, like, that was my first question because in my mind, you know, I was like, maybe it's not too late. You know, maybe he's still, maybe they can revive him or, you know, I'm just, you know, you just search in your mind for any possibility that, that he could still be alive. And they, they said like an hour ago. And then I, I just, you know, I just knew. And I, I mean, I really went crazy. I, I had, a total breakdown screaming. I mean, a woman I remember a woman walked by, it was in a mall parking lot, and I had to get out of my car. I, I couldn't sit in my car and I I just was screaming. And I remember her like grabbing her daughter as if protecting her from me as she walked by. And oh no, wow. I just I was in such total out of my head. I mean I remember just feeling leaving my body, you know, like like seeing my body and and leaving and feeling this heat rise up through my entire being and just I just I just was out of my head and I I remember hearing Richard say remember we had this conversation that what would be the worst loss and I remember him saying, we both agreed that losing our daughters would have been the absolute worst loss. And then I remembered my girls and I just, I got back in my car and I pulled on that steering wheel as if I was going to birth a child. I mean, I pulled on it so hard to pull myself back into my body. And I, I remember just seeing my girls faces and they became my bridge, you know, back and and I had to find them and I had to tell them before anybody else told them. And it was the beginning of a nightmare, you know, as anyone goes through. It's it's the
1: beginning of a nightmare. I'm so sorry, Christine.
0: Well, you know, I am too that anybody receives that phone call and people receive the, those calls all the time. And it's it's a horrible thing. And once you've yeah. gone through that and you've lived through that kind of call, you know, how devastating that kind of news is. And and there's just, you know, it's it's devastating to humanity that we have to endure loss, period, really.
1: What did your grieving process look like? Not necessarily that day, but, you know, as the weeks went by and as you tried to find a sense of normalcy, and of course, that normalcy can't ever come fully, but what did the the following months look like for you in your grieving process?
0: I think because I was so aware and had you know such a deep understanding of my you know of psychology and my own psychology and and how to operate, I think I I I did my grief in a very unique way from the very start. Um, I remember really realizing right away that that this was you know, this was going to be like the biggest, one of the biggest things I ever endured in my lifetime. And that I remember just sitting down with myself within 48 hours. And, and first of all, I initially said, I have to make this real for myself. Richard walked out the door. I will never see him again. We donated his organs. um, And so we would never see him again. And I, you know, my girls were just so heroic. I said, you know, I had to tell them that was this, that was the second worst moment of my life. And, you know, and I mean, that's probably the biggest, you know, that's, that's probably the thing that hurts the most is, you know, that your kids have to go through like that with Uh, you, but they go through it and you you just want to protect your kids, you know, from having to feel that kind of heartache. And of course, Richard was the most amazing father. So, you know, they had a great relationship with him and they're very lucky, but it's such a hard loss. You know, it's such a hard loss. And I remember though, I had to sit down and talk with myself and I, I had a, um, within 48 hours, I said, wow, you know, I, I need to really determine how I'm going to step into this you know, grief, I didn't, I didn't know what it was going to be like, I'd never lost anybody super, super significant like that. And my parents and Richard's parents were both alive and well. And, and I I remember knowing that this was going to be really a hard, like, hard thing. And I I had no idea what to expect. But I thought, you know, I need to honor Richard, and I want to honor him with my life. And I want to honor our lives that I don't, I'm not a person that wants to be pitied. I do not, I do not accept pity. This is my, this is the lot I've been given. You know, this is the hand I've been dealt and I'm, I'm going to play it and I'm going to do what I need to do. And I'm going to take care of my kids first. And, and I'm going to go through whatever I need to go through. and, And I prayed and prayed for the first year that I would come out the other side. You know, I, I had no idea what I was in for because it was bigger than anything I could have imagined. A tsunami did not describe what I went through that next few months. Like I'd never ever felt so wounded in my life. And yet I still I just accepted what what I was given and I I really went through an incredible um healing process.
1: You have this new book that's coming out called From Heartbreak to Wholeness and I, I don't think that it would be a surprise for people to learn that that's the journey that you went through after this moment. You know, obviously, you just described that heartbreak. Tell me about the process of of moving back towards wholeness. How in the world do you do that?
0: Well, you know, after ten years, which is when I really sat down to write this book, um, after ten years, I realized that I needed to. I'd been writing about healing. I had written a book called Heartbroken Open, a memoir, a memoir through loss to self-discovery. I had, you know, been in this conversation about grief and life after grief and how to recover from loss for so many years, and I had to really sit down and just for my own finality and my own wholeness, peace. I had to write a book for others because and define, you know, how to do this process of healing. Because what was so surprising and shocking to me in it was that I realized, my God, like this is, I was awakened and I would never have even considered myself to be asleep. But boy, when you go through a deep awakening like that, you realize how asleep, you know, I realized how asleep I was to my life and even to my gratitude, you know, I I didn't, I didn't, I always took for granted that I'd always have Richard, at least until I was old. He was so healthy and so beautiful and so vibrant. I never, he had some, he was struggling with some back issues and things. And, you know, but I never dreamed that this could happen, that he would die of a pulmonary embolism so suddenly, you know, that that just wasn't even in our consciousness. I mean, I was 40, I was 43. He was 45, 45 we're in the prime of our lives, you know, it just it didn't even occur to me that he could die. So, you know, I I, but I, I had to write about how to go through this process of healing and, and how you move through a process of transformation, because I wanted people to know that this is the most fertile time of your life, you are in the most growth period of your life, when you're in that kind of heartbreak and suffering, but you have to make that choice that it's going to make you a better person. You have to find meaning in your life from it. And that's the really, really huge pivot that people have to make. They have to choose to be the hero amidst
1: life-shattering circumstances. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that idea. I think that's really interesting to think that like, as heartbreaking as a moment of heartbreak is, you're saying that it's it's an opportunity as well but you have to take that 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 sounds like a hard assignment to give somebody at the lowest moment of their life break that down a little bit more for me
0: it is it is it is a hard assignment and it's not something that you choose just once you know like most people and myself included lever back and forth between feeling victimized by their circumstances and choosing to be the hero, being the victor over them. And when you can choose more at every crossroad to stand and be the hero, and and that doesn't mean that you don't feel your pain. That doesn't mean that you conquer your pain right away. It just means that you're willing to allow Your feelings to come and go. It means that you're going to be extremely mindful and present in your life. And you're not going to numb out to your pain. You're not going to try and, you know, distract yourself from it. You're going to go through it and you're going to allow it to allow something deeper to emerge within you. You know, let's just face it that when we, we develop compassion by having these experiences that you know, we hurt and therefore we understand other people who hurt. And this was certainly my experience. I, I became so in tune to humanity and to the suffering of humanity, but not until I had gone through suffering. And I I had always felt like I loved humanity, but I never understood what real suffering was until I went through it. And it turned into my greatest gift and it turned into my message in the mass really was to feel my life and to feel all of it. And that being truly alive is about being able to hold your suffering and your joy. It's not about just choosing to be happy or just always being positive. It's about allowing yourself to feel all of life. And, and that's what being alive really is. And, there is an opportunity for all of us when we go through, you know, heartbreak. And and the opportunity is to choose to allow this heartbreak to open your heart rather than shut it down, you know, for you to open your heart, to awaken more deeply and fully to the life that is yours to have. And certainly when people die that we love, that's what they remind us most is that we have this precious life energy. We've got this precious time here on this earth. And it's a very short, short experience. And it's up to us what we're going to do with it.
1: I think that's such a beautiful idea that we don't just make that choice once. You know, that's a choice that we can make, you know, on a daily basis to hold this joy and this sorrow at the same time. And maybe this is just me, like trying to be more practical than is necessary. But can you almost dive in and and break down a specific a specific opportunity that somebody could have? Actually, a specific opportunity you've taken to, you know, hold those at the same time, you know, to fully feel your emotions. You know, how do you do that in an actual moment?
0: You know, that really brings us back to present moment living, which of course is a you know philosophical way of life that the buddhists uh, have been living for centuries you know that that being able to sit with what comes being able to not push away bad feelings or push away grief but being able to allow you know go all the way in you know that's one of the things i really learned most about grieving was that grief comes in waves and and you go into your wave, you allow the wave to come and you come out. But if you resist grief and you resist that wave of emotion and feeling, it doesn't go away. It just, it sits like a dormant, you know, nastiness, like it sits in you. And for me, I just noticed my body would tell me when it was time to grieve, like my stomach would hurt if I wasn't crying oh, wow. enough. Yeah. You know? And I, I realized the association immediately that my body knew what i needed my body knew that i needed to release and and allow this you know this grief to come out and i i you know i was like wow i don't want this to stay in my body i don't want i don't want my body to pay the price for my you know my not doing the work and the work was just simply to allow the work was simply to allow myself to feel my feelings and and then move past them and back into the present moment you know and there's so much in it. I mean, I, I write so much about this in my book about, you know, the principle of thought and how your own thinking and your own thinking patterns will, you know, take you on the same train. And that is something in grief that works too, that you you if you're always living in your past and your past regrets of, you know, trying to relive those moments up to the point of your loss then you're not, you're not gonna move forward from that place. You're just gonna take yourself to the same emotional place. But once you start to realize there's a pattern there, you can jump off that pattern of thought and jump into the present moment. When people are in heartbreak, the present moment is the safest place to be because they're not in their fear of the future and they're not in their pain of their past. They're just simply in the moment. It's a
1: beautiful place to land when you're in grief. That's a profound statement right there, this idea that being present really is the safest place. What does that look like for you? You know, you're writing this book ten years later. obviously, you have to dive back into the past and, and you're writing this for for other people's future pains. How is your perspective different than where you were a decade ago or nine years ago? How do you how has living into all of these principles? changed you at your core?
0: I realized that I had healed in such a, you know, amazing capacity that I am, you know, an incredibly joyful person. And I really wanted people to be able to return to that place of joy or no greater joy than they ever knew. And so, you know, I, that's how I decided to write this book was to give people the the breadcrumbs to follow, you know, to do the work. There's, there's really a lot of soul work in this book. Is this this book is a departure from my um, other writings because I really give people the tools in this book to heal. And the and the I, I always learned that the inquiry it's the questions that we ask, the deeper questions that we ask of ourselves that matter most. And so I have in this book a soul mantra guided meditation and a soul inquiry that leads people through their own healing process and their own healing journey as the hero and that when you choose at that pivot every time you can to choose to be the hero and believe me I explain what that means it's very carefully written you know to for you to understand what one looks like and what one doesn't look like when they're a hero and that when you're able to choose to be the hero and walk the path of the hero and and tell yourself that that's what you are and have the courage to face what you're facing, but see yourself facing it as the hero and not victimized. You're not at the affect of life. You know, you're, you're, you're still stepping in every day to life. And, and, you know, that's the thing, you know, when somebody gets the diagnosis that they have cancer or, you know, somebody in their life that they love dies, you still have to live. I mean, life's going to go on with or without you, you know, you you have to still live. And so, you know, the beauty of this book and the beauty of what I was able to see and do is that I don't just write my own story in this book. It's not just about there's, there's a hundred stories in the book. It's, it's about for somebody whose kids are going off to college and they're brokenhearted. It's for somebody who loses their job or for somebody who's lost their home in a fire, or, you know, there's so many different ways that we go through heartbreak, but if you can write your story and transform your story into the hero's journey, very loosely based on Joseph Campbell's work, I, I kind of took the imprint of the hero's journey and imprinted it on healing by my own interpretation. So I really saw the correlation in how I stepped into my own healing journey as the hero. And, and so many of my friends, so many of the people that I'm sure you have on your show, you could say that they are real life heroes that, they've taken their tragedy and they've allowed it to move them forward on a trajectory of life. And they use their story and they use that story and they give it back to humanity as a way to offer hope and a way to encourage. And in the, at the end of the day, that's what we do with story at the end of the day. You know, my story impacts people because I went through the tragedy that I did and because I chose to be an inspired and inspiring person rather than what I could have been. You know, that's that's what's inspiring for other people. That's what helps heal humanity. And and that's like why we have like one heart of humanity because we all feel sorrow and we all feel joy.
1: Ugh, Christine, that was so beautiful. And I just want you to know that I think that you are a hero and I I love the way that you have chosen to use your story to have an impact on other people and make people feel less alone. I want to just wrap up with one final question. For people who are trying to rewrite their story and, and understand it in this context and you know trying to live into this idea of, of using our stories to make a difference, what's one practical, tangible piece of advice you would give people that you would leave people with today to go out and begin that journey.
0: Well, one thing I want to say to all of you is you don't have to be a writer to write your own story as the hero's journey. What's most important in life is the stories we tell ourselves. And what, what's so powerful and impactful is if you do sit down and do the inner work, you know, and that comes from the outside, which is working on your story, you know, formulating journaling, you know, it's so healing and, but that's really the one takeaway that I would love for you to know is that, that as you write your story and journal about what you've been through, whether or not you ever show it to anyone else, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you've told yourself the important thing, and that is that you have the courage to step into life and that you have the courage to embrace what is, not push it away, but embrace what it is, and that you are facing that with with a a form of like allowance allowing it to allow something new to emerge from you and I think that that's probably the most beautiful thing if you could understand that there is a beginning and every ending and that that's you know that your story may feel like an ending but it's only opening a whole new chapter for you that's going to be incredible as long as you step in
1: Wow, what a beautiful conversation. I truly admire Christine's vulnerability and her evident joy. Christine reminds me to lean into this idea that part of the adventure in life is not always knowing what's going to happen next. And the next part may not be what you expect. It may even be painful. But the key to enjoying the journey is being open to the unknown. If you resonated with Christine's story and want to dive deeper, go ahead and pre-order her book. It's called From Heartbreak to Wholeness, and it's so good and holds so much wisdom inside of it, even beyond the truths that Christine shared in our conversation today. Outside of that, you can check out Christine's site from heartbreaktowholeness.com to learn more about the book and get other resources. Plus, check out her Twitter and her Facebook. There's a lot of good happening there. And honestly, y'all, if you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you connected with this conversation, you would also connect with my conversations with Kelly Haddock, who also lost her husband too soon, and Emily McDowell, who wrote a book about what to say to people when they're experiencing grief. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michaels-Navely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karen Brock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco and visiting our website, goodgoodgood.co. And something that we create on a weekly basis besides this podcast right here is our Good Newsletter. Every single week on Tuesday, we call it Tuesday Good News Day, we send out five pieces of good news worth knowing about straight to your inbox. It's one of my favorite things that we create here at Good Good Good. And when you sign up for free at goodnewsletter.org, you join a community of more than 15,000 people who believe in the power of celebrating the good of the world. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Try to remember that you have the courage to step into life. You have the courage inside of you to move from heartbreak to wholeness. Sound good?